Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The word of the Lord. Seven years ago, Christ Church Vienna began. We set out to start in our vision and values a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. We did not set out just to create a vision and values, nor did we set out simply to build a building. We set out to create a community of people in Christ that would be an outpost for Jesus Christ, a place where the kingdom of God would be affected in our own lives and through us to the world around us. Why did we start a church when there was already a lot of them? Honestly, it's because I wanted more people to know Jesus, to experience his love, his inbreaking spirit in their life. And everything that I had seen was that a new church was the single most effective way to do this. And so a number of you began with me this church, and for seven years we've been going. Some of you have come on more recently, and one of the things that I realized looking back, last night I spent some time on my patio praying and giving thanks to God for these seven years is all the people that have affected this church community. And as I looked back over seven years, I had a lot of joyful memories giving thanks to God giving thanks to God for a church that was flexible enough to change locations. A windstorm once kicked out all the power in Fairfax County and we had to meet outside. We've had to lose this space because of frozen pipes and water main breaks. We have a church of people that gather joyfully outside for outdoor baptisms and come in and set up and take down and care for kids. I look back on the joy of many friendships that have been built through these years together. And I also look back with sorrow, giving thanks for those who have left or have left this earth. And as I was praying and giving thanks, I also began to pray looking ahead, God, what do you want? It's a question we should always be asking in our own lives. What do you want with me in this next season? Where are we going and how can we be faithful to what you are calling us to? So if we're trying to figure out where we're going, there's no better place than to start at the end. Heaven. We are in a series called uh, Gospel and Life, and we are on the topic of heaven. The final in our series as we've been examining our vision and values through this study. So the two questions for today are, what is the Christian hope when it comes to heaven? And second, what are the implications of this view of heaven for our lives and for us as a church? Let's just jump right into this passage 
of Revelation 21. We'll bounce back to Isaiah 60 a little bit, but let's unpack a little bit of what God's hope for us is, what he lays out for us is our hope in heaven. So the first thing we see in verse 1 and verse 5 of Revelation 21 is John, who writes this down, says, I saw heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and first earth had passed away. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then the Lord God in verse 5 declares, behold, I am making all things new. So just very basically, this is the overarching idea. The hope of heaven The Christian hope of heaven is the renewal and restoration of all creation. It is our resurrection to full and eternal life in Christ and the restoration and resurrection, the renewal of all things. In other words, God is not just about destroying everything and us being taken away into some disembodied bliss. The vision of heaven is a lot more like Eden. You can go get those descriptions of gardens and people relating to one another and interacting with God the Father. The picture of heaven that we get in the New Testament is Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection. There he was, walking around, talking with the disciples, eating, but in a new and eternal sort of way. What you believe about the end matters. There's a word that I've used here often. It's called telos. We talk about being telic or teleological creatures. That means your ends, your goals, where everything is going. We are telic creatures. We always are shooting towards something. What you believe about the telos matters because it informs and shapes how you go about doing what you do. What you believe the end goal is for your work shapes how you go about your work. Now, popular culture and even popular Christianity in America has held to this idea of disembodied bliss, becoming angels, stroking harps on clouds. It's a view of heaven that is actually not really Christian. Part of the idea behind that is this idea that God's going to destroy everything in his judgment and we're going to be taken away floating up in the sky. Floating for a while sounds pretty cool. But then some of us get a little bit bored of the idea of just stroking harps for eternity. I actually think the vision of heaven is much more compelling. The vision that we get in scripture. And it's not about escaping this life. It's about the renewal and restoration of this life and all things. What you believe about the ends, about the telos, matters. If you believe that God is going to one day destroy all these things and we're going to be taken away, then your goal is simply to bide your time until we're taken away. Avoid sin, tell some people about Jesus, nothing else you do matters, and escape. But if your end goal, if you believe that the end of all things is resurrection, the restoration of all things, it calls you and me, it calls us to a very different sort of life. God's aims, God's intention is resurrection to eternal life for all those who put their faith in Christ and the restoration of all things. It is resurrection to eternal life and the restoration of all things. And there is continuity and discontinuity in the way that we think about it. I think when we get to eternity, many of us are going to be 
completely surprised. Some of us will be like, oh, this looks really familiar. And I think the difference is going to be this. It's how you lived your life here. Because I do believe there is a continuity between this creation and this life and the life to come. Much like Jesus looked not much different in his resurrected body. I think there's such continuity that many believers in Christ who have cultivated intimacy with God in their life, who have lived by the power of the indwelling spirit, who have lived their lives poured out for the glory of God and for the good of others, those people who have experienced God and all of his fullness daily in this life are going to get there and be like, oh, it's kind, it's kind of what I expected. Because they've had a life filled with the foretaste of heaven. They've been experiencing it as they've walked in relationship with God in their daily lives. And likewise, I think there's going to be many of us who get there because our faith is in Christ who are going to be like, gosh, this is nothing like I expected. Because you haven't tapped in to the fullness of what God has in store for you. You haven't experienced the life of intimacy with the Father, the power of his spirit, the transformation that he wants to give you, walking daily, serving him, and serving others. There's continuity, and there's going to be discontinuity, but in the end, it is God's aim is the resurrection to eternal life of all those who put their faith in Christ and the restoration of all things. But thankfully, there will be some amount of discontinuity in that there will be no more pain. He will, verse 4 says, wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. They have passed away because God has put his judgment on sin and Satan and evil and death, and they are done away with, thank God. And he will wipe away every tear. That's such a sweet description of what God is going to do. But here's what's interesting about that idea of he will wipe away every tear. The implication behind it is not that your past pains will be forgotten. But as several commentators point out, the implication of that phrasing is that your past pains will be redeemed. Think about it. Jesus in his resurrected body has wounds, right? He's not walking around with the disciples after the resurrection like, well, how'd those get there? He knows how they got there. But what used to be a grievous thing becomes the source of his greatest glory and joy. His very wounds are resurrected. There's some way in which God will redeem even our greatest pains and make all the sadness about them become a part of our greatest joy. It's what the character Sam Gamgee said when he saw Gandalf alive in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, Sam. Well, not for you, because you're just a character in a book. But everything sad is going to come untrue one day. It's why Paul is able to say in Romans 8.18, the suffering of this present life 
is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I don't know how this is going to be or what this will look like. Many of you have dealt with a lot of suffering and pain and loss in your life. But in some way, all of our grief, all of our tears, all of our pains will be redeemed and may even be the source of our greatest joys. All things will be made new. There'll be no more pain or suffering or death because God is going to dwell with us. God is going to dwell with us, the source of all life and joy and hope. In verse three of Revelation 21, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That word dwell is a great word in the Greek and in the Hebrew, which is behind it, is the word shakan, which basically means tent. It's the glory and presence of God, but it also means tent. Okay, so literally they were a Bedouin people in the, in the Middle East, the Hebrew peoples were, right? All the story of Exodus, Abraham, they had tents, that's what you lived in. You didn't live in brick ramblers, you didn't live in colonials. You, you lived in a tent. And when Israel first enters, is going into the promised land, God is dwelling in a tent called the tabernacle, which is what the word shakan basically means. The story of the Bible can actually be told as the story of where God tents, where he dwells. In Eden, God is there face to face with Adam and Eve. He is walking with them in the garden. He tents with them in the garden, if you would. But when they turn their back on God at the fall, they are driven out from God. They do not experience his presence or glory anymore. So God's presence is taken from them. Until as God calls his people, through Moses in the story of Exodus, he decides to arrive again as this glorious other, holy other God. And there you have in the story of Exodus, the tabernacle, this building that they make, this tent that they make that God dwells in. It was a holy place. You couldn't enter into it. But once a year, if you were a high priest, everyone else had to stay away. But God was with his people. And when they entered the city of Jerusalem and took it over, that temple was eventually built that God dwelt in. That temple was destroyed. But on Christmas morning, the temple was brought to life here. Jesus was Emmanuel, God tenting with us. God walking around in human flesh. God touchable, huggable. God where you could see him saying, I will tent with you at this moment in a physical location. But it's better that I go away because I will send my spirit, my Holy Spirit who will tent where? In you, in me. God no longer in a building, God not just localized in Jesus, but God in you and me, awaiting the day when one day God will be in all. God will be present everywhere. His tent will be the whole creation, and he will be with each of us face to face. It's actually an incredibly intimate image. I, I know this because I have gone tenting with people before, and I've decided not to tent with them. When I was in college, I led wilderness trips up in the Adirondacks, and the first trip I went on, I was in the tent with the three high school boys for the first night. But after the second night, I realized they move around, they don't smell good, and they're noisy, and some of them snore. So I decided to tent outside in the stars for the entire rest of the summer. 
I'd rather be under a plastic tarp than in the tent with those boys. I was caring for them, loved them as part of my role, but I did not want to be in the tent with them. And God is saying, I want to be in the tent with you. We will live together. It is incredibly informal, if you would. God desiring to live with us. It's why the language is used both here and in other places of us as the bride, of a marriage between us and God. Think about that. The Bible talks about two becoming one in the union of marriage. God is saying, you are my bride. You and I will become one in some way. And it's also the indication, even in that sort of language, that all the things we're longing for in this life when it comes to relationships, like longing for a wife if you don't have one, wanting a better husband, yours isn't that good right now, wishing you had a best friend, is actually a desire for God. You are longing for God, and one day your desires will be met in full. I think that's in part what Jesus is getting at when he says there will be no marriage in heaven. It's not that marriage, you know, relationships are irrelevant. It's that even a marriage is meant to point to your relationship with God. It has a telos, an end point. And every relationship is meant to point us to God, to the intimacy we are meant to have with God the Father. God is going to dwell with us one day, which means this. Heaven is not about escaping up and out of here. But it's about advent, which means arrival. God here with us forever. It gets so real in that here with us forever that he talks about building a city or his city coming down, heaven coming down to earth, not us going up to heaven talks about it in the language of New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Verse 2 and 22, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God. There's all sorts of words that we cut out of the reading, talking about the description of the, the size of the city and the streets paved with gold and all these things that are actually meant to point us to the nature of what God is about to do in eternity. Cities in the ancient world were places of refuge and security, which basically means shalom in that Old Testament way of understanding things. They were also the place where you had community, where culture developed. And as we talked about eight weeks ago, the story of the Bible begins in a garden. But where does it end in Revelation 21? In a city. And that's part of God's call on the people to take the garden and cultivate it and bring order and spread over the earth until you develop culture that becomes a city, that becomes and awaits the city of God. God, come down. One thing that we get from this, at least, is that cities, places where we build up cultures, places where people together create things, Cities and cultures and nations and peoples matter to God. And it affects our posture, our 
our direction towards the city. Because we are called to be citizens of the city of heaven, living in the city of man, if you would. And it changes how we approach everything. People who tend to be very religious tend to reject the city and the culture of the day, condemning it, avoiding it, trying to remain holy and just waiting for escape. Secular people tend to simply reflect the city, embrace and assimilate whatever the culture and the city values do the same thing, and ultimately use this nation, this culture for your own good. But a Christian with a view that God is is bringing his city here, that we are citizens of his kingdom, called to live that out in this culture and in this world, seek to love and seek the welfare of the city to which we have been called. Having God's heart for this place and this people. As God says to Jonah in Jonah 4.11, should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh? Nineveh was a godless city. Jonah wanted God to destroy it. And God said, well, maybe I'll redeem it. And God says, I want you to have the same heart for your city, for your culture, for the places around you. Don't embrace it and be just like it, nor reject it and condemn it. Seek to love it. Seek God's purposes for it. We are called to be dual citizens, citizens of the city of God dwelling in the city of man until he comes, seeking the welfare of the city of man. And to that end, we're called to lay our whole lives before God. We get this in this phrase, the glory of the nations. Revelation 21, 24 says, the nations will bring their glory into this city. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. John in Revelation 21 is quoting almost directly from Isaiah 60 that we read earlier. Isaiah 60 says this, that one day all the darkness that covers the earth will disappear because the Lord is going to arise and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You may forget it, but when Jonathan was reading this earlier, it goes through a whole description of all the things that get brought into this city, into this dwelling place of God with his people. It is the camels of Midian and the flocks of Kedar and the glory of Lebanon, and then it describes three types of trees and the ships of Tarshish. Tarshish. Basically, the nations, the powerful nations of the world will bring all of their best before God and lay them down. Think about the implications of that. Each of these things were the reason why these places had power and wealth. All of these things were used as instruments of war and of business for the nation's own good. But at the end, they are laying them down before God. Those ships became instruments for God's good and God's purposes. Lebanon saying, the trees that we use to build up our cities and to make our weapons of war are now yours, God. Make them into your sanctuary. The idea is one day, 
every culture's goods will be laid before God. Much like the little drummer boy who didn't have gold or frankincense or myrrh, but he played his drum for him. Wonders of this are that there's an indication that some of the things that we do, that we do as individuals, some of the things that we build and work and create as collective peoples will last. The best of every culture will be laid down before God for his purposes and glory. What's going to last? I don't know. The food and wine of the French, the tea and spices of India, the engineering and standards of Germans, literature and law from the English, Middle Eastern hospitality and Kenyan friendship and Western civil rights. Brazilian soccer is probably going to last. What of the greatest goods of America do you think will last? McDonald's? I hope not. Probably film, visual storytelling. Things like jazz and blues and even rock and roll will probably last in some way. The highway system and the way it connected people technology and innovation that America has built. Some of these things in some way, the indications of Isaiah 60 and and Revelation 21, some of these things will be there. They will be transformed, used for God's purposes, not for ours, not for our good, not for building up our power and glory, but laid down before God for his purposes and his kingdom. It's all part of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. Go and reflect me. Tend the garden I give you. Bring order out of chaos. Be fruitful and multiply. Reign and rule over the creation. N.T. Wright puts it this way, God's recreation of his world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in Christ and the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by his spirit in the present is not wasted. It will and in some way, last and be enhanced. It, it will last and in some way will be enhanced. N.T. Wright then goes on to describe a stonemason a thousand years ago in Durham Cathedral time. When Durham Cathedral was being built in England, one of the most gorgeous ancient uh, cathedrals, he said there would be stonemasons all over the surrounding area whose job was simply to cut large blocks of stone. It might take an entire year to cut one or two stones. And all they know is that some architect, some designer has come around and said, here's what I need. This much by this much with a slight curve. The description is there and they know it's going to be part of something big, some cathedral, but they haven't seen the plans. They just know that one day it's going to be part of something. Durham Cathedral took 40 years to build. It's likely that many stonemasons didn't see their end product. They simply every year passed off a few stones, not knowing that their their set of stones was going to be part of the turret or the front facade or the archway. But the grand architect knew where and how it was all going to fit in, their excellence becoming a part of a greater more beautiful, amazing structure. 
in some way what we do will last. And so the calling is this, do your lawyering, your learning, your accounting, your parenting, not for your own good, not for power or approval or pleasure, but do it excellently for God's glory and the good of others and his creation. And it just may last. Those cookies you bake, the way you play music, the way you make friendships and listen to people, your excellence in your realm of work, these things may last. The hope of eternity is this. God is going to resurrect and renew us and all things. And because of that, and along with God's love of his creation, what we do, what we build, what we love, and how we live matters. And it may even be eternal. So here's the picture of heaven. Heaven is not bouncing around. It is God come here to wipe away every tear, to dwell with us, to raise us to new and eternal life, to take all that we have laid down before him for his glory and build it into a greater and eternal kingdom. And he is going to renew all creation. What are the implications? One, what we grieve will be redeemed. Two, what we build may just last. And three, we are citizens of the city of God now, seeking the welfare of the city of man in which we live. And this has implications for us as a church, of course. Christ Church Vienna is a gospel-driven, externally-focused, extended family Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. You know, Vienna regularly ranks as one of the top towns in America, but I've said this before, Vienna is not heaven. Vienna is not the eternal kingdom. Vienna is not the new Jerusalem. Nor is Fairfax or Reston or Maryfield. Nor is D.C., nor is America, nor is your hometown, nor is your favorite vacation spot. Our vision is supposed to be God's vision. Picturing heaven and what it's going to look like when heaven comes down here. What will this town, your neighborhood, look like if God reigned, if he fully reigned on your street, in every home, in every business. It would not look like marriages breaking up or teens struggling with identity and stress and suicide. It would not look like the addiction or aging and loneliness. It would not look like all the pain and suffering that our broken and sinful world looks like. So in many ways, our calling as a church is to picture our community when God returns and to build towards that in all that we do. Christ Church Vienna exists for those not in this church or any church. And so we're going to continually push ourselves out in what we do. And that means even though we had, did not start off looking for a building, if God laid a building in our path, or if 10 years from now we had a building, we would do it differently than some churches do. It would not be a building just for Christ Church Vienna. It would be for the flourishing and shalom of this place that God has called us. 
for the people who aren't necessarily in this church or any church. That's why I years ago talked about if you had a sanctuary, I'd want it to also serve as a theater or a place of music for the community so the people who don't even go to church would be like, oh, I like that, that it's there. You'd build buildings, if you could, that had affordable housing or hospice care or in some way impacted the wider community, affecting shalom and goodness and healing and help. Because we're constantly posturing ourselves to the outsider, which is something that nobody does well. Our natural tendency is to guard ourselves. And you see that in a town like Vienna, in a county like Fairfax. We're constantly trying to protect our way of life protect our prosperity, our well-being, as long as my kids are happy, as long as I've got everything, we're all good. The gospel and that vision of heaven calls us to push out, to see this place differently and to lay down everything that we have for God, to look for the immigrant sojourning in our midst, to see if Vienna could be a place that impacts the poor in a way that it doesn't right now. And ultimately, we are called to be a church that is an alternate city, a city on a hill, revealing and spreading God's kingdom purposes, having his kingdom values, an alternate approach to power and work and sex and family, where relationships are a priority, relationships of genuine humility and grace because the gospel is driving us. One day, God will come and wipe away every tear and renew all things. Until then, there's us. God's presence in this world. His kingdom-spreading presence in our community, in our places, in our city. Let's pray. God, in the midst of a world that is difficult and challenging with so much grief and loss, random acts of violence, slavery and sin and addiction and brokenness, we are thankful that one day you will come to wipe away our tears. And that as you renew all things, you also call us to lay down our lives and our work and our relationships to you. So take us and take this church and use it for your purposes and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.